on this week's The Koi Gig Podcast, we had an exclusive interview with Manchester United's owner, Barrier. With those crowds and that pressure, I just love it. Listen now and make sure you subscribe to The Koi Gig Podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. This is so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm delighted to say Andy Mitten is with us this week for You Had to Be There. Andy, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. All good, thanks. This is very difficult. Um, a lot of people complain about like how, how do I fit a whole life of watching sport into five things? How difficult was it for you? Very difficult. I'm probably watching 85 live football matches each season. Maybe 10 of them are excellent and maybe five of them are wow. And I've been doing that for nearly 40 years. Wow. So so there's a a lot of games. games. And then that's just only only one sport. Obviously, I'm watching a lot more football than than other sports. And we're going to stick this one to football. But yeah, very, very difficult. But I just I just chose ones which were varied and um, covered my life as a supporter, but also as a, as a journalist. I didn't just want to do five Man United ones, for example. Um, I've probably watched Lionel Messi play live um, 200 times, and I thought, you know, got to have him in. But could, You could have picked five Messis, and we would have been, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, that, that would have been allowed. Come here, you mentioned other sports. Are you an avid watcher of other sports? Do you attend other sports? I mean, where the hell would you get the time to? I'd say non-league football would be my other sport and I struggle to get the time. So I'd support a local team called Trafford in the part of Manchester where I'm from and I'm lucky if I get to two games per, per season. Uh, if I'm just going to a game and, and not working, it, it's a real joy. I watched Man United women the other night against Manchester City and was lucky to be there with my family and not to work and, and that was good. I like, I like live sporting events. I, I, I'm very much... You know, if I was in Ireland and somebody said there's a game of, of Gaelic football or hurling, I would be absolutely up for going because it's not just about the the, the sport, it's about the sense of community and all these people being brought together and I'm fascinated by, by stadiums, by, by fan culture, um, by what goes on outside the, the, the venues. I find myself looking at these stadiums in Ireland with huge capacities because they're mostly standing and thinking that was in England. The capacity would be less than half the published figure in Ireland. So I'm a fan of everything about it, not just the the excellence of the, the elite athletes. Um, I might go to horse racing once a year, tennis once a year, just out of curiosity more than anything else. I'm, I'm not um, an expert by any stretch, but... I like going to live events. I think watching something on on a screen is very much second second best uh, for me. I'd rather watch a game of non-league football in person than watch a game of football whatever level on on, on a television. And I realise I'm in the minority there because most people consume sports through 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 a screen. When did you start United We Stand? I started in '89, so I was 15. But from the age of four. 
uh, I was going to live football with my dad. All, all my family are footballers, and I'm from a big family, so I'm just about the only person in a big family who's not received money to play football. So watching my dad at Northwich Victoria or Hyde United, that was like my Maracanã or my Bernabeu. When, you, when you're six years old and you're basically being taken to give your mum a break on a Saturday afternoon, and me and my brother, who also became a footballer, We'd be climbing these stands and looking for streams behind the stands. We wouldn't actually be watching the game itself. We'd be bored after five minutes. And then when I was 13, I I started going to Manchester United games by myself. My dad wouldn't take me because he, he was always playing. And I could hear Old Trafford from, from where I lived on the border of Stratford and Urmston. I used to deliver newspapers and I'd be out in the open and I could hear the roar of Old Trafford. It was that loud. I don't think you could hear that now because the stadium is much more enclosed. And it was always a United fan. I was from a big United family in a part of Manchester, which is mainly United. So the Manchester City Supporters Club in, in my part of Manchester is called Blues in Bandit Country. <laughs> and they're proper they're proper good football supporters, you know. They they've followed City all their lives, but they are in the minority. So as soon as I was able to go, I'd get on the bus to Old Trafford. And the bus was packed with local kids and it's empty now. It's really sad that. And within two years I was going to away matches and I started United We Stand because I felt that football fans were getting a rough deal. I thought the prices were too high, the facilities were terrible, we were all classed as hooligans. I thought, I'm not a hooligan. And then by 17, I was going to European away games and, and it never really stopped. I loved the travel. I loved being there. And all these years later, I think I've been to like 120 countries and seen Manchester United play in like 45 of them. It's not just new countries, it's new towns. It itched me for years that I'd never been to Cork. So I went to Cork for the Liam Miller game. Um, it annoys me that I've not been to the West Coast uh, uh, of Ireland. I've not been to Donegal. I wrote Paddy Creran's book. It's all about Donegal. I've not been there. I've not been to Derry. These things annoy me. So maybe there's a bit of a, I wouldn't say an addiction, because I think I'm pretty sensible and rational, but... You know, the idea of, of watching sport in any of these places absolutely appeals to me. Yeah, your first one here, you got to cross Rotterdam off your list way back in 1991. This is a huge moment for Alex Ferguson's um, reputation and power and just a sense of like, OK, there's something, there's something really, really special brewing here, even though they have yet to get the monkey fully off their back. This is Mark Hughes against Barcelona in Rotterdam in 1991, European Cup Winners' Cup Final. Huge deal. And Manchester United had a relatively easy run to the final. English clubs were allowed back into Europe for the first time after after the ban following the, the Heysel disaster. And finally in Rotterdam against Barcelona. Wow, managed by Johan Cruyff. I've never been so happy to get a ticket in my hand as that beautiful green counterfoil for that game because there were so many conflicting rumours. This was before the internet, so there was so much hearsay around fans would, wouldn't be allowed to travel, would, wouldn't be. You'd have to go officially, you'd have to go on the club coaches. So I booked to go independently on, on a, a coach which was advertised as an executive one. And maybe when that coach was built in 1954, it was executive, <laughs> but... By 1991, not having a toilet on a coach to Holland was a, was a bit of an issue. And 
there were a lot of very rum lads on that coach from Salford and I was 17 and they really looked after me. We went to Amsterdam and they basically said, don't go there, don't go there. And they indulged heavily. And I was, I was just like, wow, there's a, there's another big world out there. <laughs> and it rained. Manchester was an exciting place. The music scene was good. The Manchester era, the fashion with the flares, just a great time to be alive. But in my school, they banned us from from going. So I got a mate of mine who helped with United We Stand to forge a letter from the mayor of Rotterdam saying I'd been invited. <laughs> I gave it to my headmaster and he, he congratulated me and said how proud he was of me. And uh, 11 other lads from my school went to Rotterdam. They all got suspended. I got, I got congratulated. <laughs> and did you feel any, any guilt when he was like, ah, oh, Andy, this is incredible. Well done. <laughs> we never thought you were going to amount to very much, but well done. Were you like, oh, uh, mildly guilty? I rang my mum from um, Dover on the way home and she was crying. She said, you've been made head boy of the school. Wow. I just had a phone call. <laughs> and uh, a year earlier, I'd had to persuade the headmaster to let me do my A-levels because... I'd, I'd messed up in my GCSEs because um, he said, you've got something else on your mind. And, of course, I, I had a print run. I had United We Stand to sell the following morning. <laughs> I had a business to run. You know, I was 16 years old. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I went back and um, that, 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 that month was brilliant. I passed my driving test that month. But Rotterdam in the rain, everyone's singing Sit Down by James. And then Manchester United won the game. Barca were favourites. Barca were, it was the first year of the dream team and they just won the Spanish league for the first time in several years. And subsequently, I've got to know quite a few of the lads who played, obviously from the United side, but also from the Barcelona side. And it was a really tight game. Manchester United wore a wonderful white kit. And there were some worries in that team, Ince and Robson and young Lee Sharp. But Mark Hughes scored both goals and he scored them in about in space for about seven minutes in the second half, I think 67th minute. And suddenly Manchester United are beating Barcelona 2-0 and wow, we've not just come for a trip here, we could actually win a trophy. And it was a huge deal, the Cup Winners' Cup, all the European Cups were, and I think they still should be. And Barca got an equaliser, pulled, pulled the goal back, so it was 2-1, and it was really nervy the last few minutes because Barca attacked and attacked, and technically they had better players than Manchester United. But they held on, and it was fantastic, and it's still a major milestone in the life of a lot of Manchester United fans, and 30 years on, I managed to track down the referee, the travel organiser, the players, and just got told some incredible stories. Mick Hucknell gate crashed the after after game party and Brian McClare a bright man who's really into his music he said to Mick I'm, I'm not really into your stuff and I think you've peaked as an artist <laughs> in the following year Stars by Simply Red was the best selling album in the United Kingdom for two years on the bounce and Brian McClare said Mick had the good grace not to pull him up on that but just um the fans behaving, uh, the event passing without much trouble was news in itself because English football fans had a terrible reputation, not not without reason. So to go there and 
it helped that Manchester United won. It probably helped that it rained as well. And maybe it helped that some of the Manchester United fans had indulged in whatever Amsterdam had to offer. <laughs> there was very little aggression and Barcelona fans were pretty straight. And, you know, they'd seen the team lose and they were outnumbered by Manchester United fans. It also taught me the power of exaggeration from football fans. The numbers in Rotterdam have gone up by the year. And I think all fans do this. And I remember being a real anorak for, for figures and thinking there's 24,000 Manchester United fans here. And I'm properly doing my sums, getting all the hard information. And it just goes up every year. I'm sure any Celtic fans who went to Seville against Porto will be able to relate to this. You're soon into six figures and not soon after that, you're into seven figures. <laughs> and half a million and a million fans have gone there. And as soon as you contest it, you're like, um, no, no, there are at least 500,000 of us there. There wasn't. <laughs> the, uh... so I think all football fans are drawn to doing that, but it was a huge Manchester United following which crossed the channel. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Even one of those Mark Hughes goals where he rounds the keeper uh, and smashes yeah. it. I think even, was it Sergio Busquets' dad was the goalkeeper for Barcelona that night? It was Carlos Busquets. He was um, Barcelona's reserve goalkeeper and was a bit of a character in the Barcelona dressing room. One of the players said, if somebody stole your car radio, you would go to Carlos Busquets to get it back. He was a, <laughs> a man from the barrio. And Barca were missing a couple of players, and maybe their full-strength team would have beaten Manchester United, but they didn't. And That's the glory of it. When Barca mm. fans tell me about their other victories, I, I sort of say, yeah, but what about Rotterdam? They go, Pfft. Never mind, right now. <laughs> the um, next one is Roy Keane versus Juventus in Turin in 1999. Um, it's hard, I think, now for people to understand the level of tension that there would have been at that stage of the competition, uh, given that the Holy Grail was the Champions League, as it was the European Cup, and Ferguson had made no secret of this. Um, and they'd been in it loads at that stage. And there wasn't a guarantee that they were going to win it or that they were going to fulfil the destiny of him being one of the greatest managers in the history of the game, that there would have been this kind of nagging doubt about his ability and the team's ability if they hadn't been able to get over the line. And they're on the verge of going out. I think maybe people like, when you watch the game back, knowing what happens at the end, without the actual competitive tension on the day, everything is kind of, there's just an edge taken off everything. But it was so edgy. Juventus were the best team in the world, in my opinion, and had dominated at, at Old Trafford and were clear favourites to go through. The second leg was in was in Deli Alpi, which had been built for the 1990 uh, World Cup finals. And I travelled there with all my mates. As we did, we went home and away with Manchester United and people have got a bit of a downer on Turin as a city. I actually really, really rate it, but we didn't go there to look at the architecture. We went to watch a game of football and the idea of Manchester United reaching a European Cup final was enough for me because, as you say, the team had been getting closer. There had been some near misses, Dortmund in 97, Monaco in 98. It was clearly a very, very good team. But it would take Roy Keane to get that team through. So Juventus were 2-0 up, two goals from Inzaghi in, inside 11 minutes. So they're now leading 3-1 on, on aggregate and they're at home. And... Because of a mix-up with a ticket, I found myself sat in the main stand, not in the press box. And I can't understand Italian, but they knew I wasn't Italian. And the people were just gesticulating to me as if to say, 
hard luck. You know, we're, we're brilliant. We're Juventus. They weren't being nasty. And they were brilliant. But then Keane had other ideas and scored after 24 minutes. And then Dwight York um, scored again after after 34 minutes. So at half time, I don't think I've ever felt like this watching a game of football in my life, including the final. I just thought my local team have gone toe-to-toe with Juventus and they're the better team and we're going through it because it was away goals. And I went downstairs to get something to eat because I was starving and there was nothing for sale apart from these coffees, which had like two millilitres of (laughs) coffee in them. And So the second half um, started. I was really envious that I wasn't with my friends on the other side of the stadium. Andy Cole made it 3-2. Manchester United were going to a European Cup final. And that was enough for me, not even winning the final, just reaching a final. And... I was completely elated and the, the, the same Italians that had been sympathetic to me were pretty gracious, actually, and were saying, this is an incredible team, incredible. And I got lulled into a false sense of security there because these were very middle-class Juventus fans and I thought, oh, they all must be really nice people. Left the ground, went round behind the, the home end to try and get towards my mates in the away end. Um, asked the steward directions. Someone heard my English voice. I heard the word inglese. And the next minute I was getting attacked. And this guy, I was basically where all the ultras were. And this man just flew at me and kicked me in, in the top of my, my my thigh. And I said to the steward who was still there, um, Torino, as if, I mean, it, there's no logic to this. I'm trying to tell him that I'm, I'm, I'm Turin, but Torino are their rivals, aren't they? <laughs> and this steward said to me in Italian, which I understood perfectly, despite not speaking a word of it, don't care who you're saying you are, get out of here now. It's not safe <laughs> for you. <laughs> so I ran away on the big ramp towards where our hire car was. Gave up on the idea of, of seeing my friends in the away end. They were all celebrating, four and a half thousand Manchester United fans. And it seemed like a long time before they came back. It probably was an hour. Um, they came back to the car and we were hugging. We were going to Barcelona to watch Manchester United in a European Cup final. And then we drove to Genoa where we were staying. We got cheap flights because the cheap flights had started to flourish around that time. And I stepped out the car in Genoa, so it's probably two in the morning now, and just collapsed. You know, the adrenaline had, ca- had, had carried me through, but I'd actually had a pretty bad kick to my leg and my leg wouldn't wouldn't stand and I just fell on the floor. And it was all right. It was nothing serious, just just badly bruised. So it was, it was the best performance I've, I think I've ever seen. I spoke to Roy Keane about this and he'd just gone, I did all right. No, he didn't. I did all right. Spoke to Nicky Butt about it, and he said, you know, Roy's role's been overplayed by people like you. And I'm like, no, no. Spoke to Jesper Blomquist about it, who said, Roy, because Roy was sent, Roy, Roy's yellow card would meant that he missed the final. And Roy went mad at Jesper Blomquist, because Jesper passed him the ball, which led to the yellow card. And Roy didn't speak to him for seven weeks after. <laughs> I once told Roy Keane this, and he went, really? He didn't know where, he went, hell of a player, Jesper. He was really nice when he was talking about Jesper. And Jesper said, it wasn't even a bad pass. 
I did nothing wrong. <laughs> Suddenly, I've got my captain blanking me. <laughs> so maybe that shows what what Roy Keane was like. But Andy Cole and Dwight York were were incredible that night. It was just just a wonderful night to go to the best team in the world and and to win three two. The Nicky Bob point, right? Because we rewatched this and did a show on it during COVID, and you can't tell how good the performance that Keane has from now, really, because. They were going out against a team who had, as you say, were really essentially the best team in Europe, who had flukily lost the previous season, who had Peak Zidane, who had Deschamps, who's uh, already just captain France to win the World Cup. As you say, Inzaghi, it's, it, does Del Piero come off the bench or does he start? They're just the Edgar Davids in the sides, they were so glamorous. And Manchester United had so often just failed. They just failed to do what we thought they were capable of doing in the competition at this stage, and it looked like 2-0 down that it was going to happen. But there's a, a magic about what Keane does over the next while, which is calmness in the maelstrom, and then also bring the fire at the same time, and gets, gets them back in the game too, obviously, uh, you know, with like a, an untypical header. Um, but from this distance, when you watch the game, you're like, oh, why does everybody rave about this so much? It's because the context is kind of yeah. stripped away when you watch it now on YouTube. Yeah, and, and that Juventus team, as you said, um, all them players uh, did play. Montero came off the bench. Some of the lads said he was the hardest man they 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 played against. Carlo Ancelotti was obviously the the, the manager. They, they were hardened and effective. I, I saw them completely destroy Manchester United in '96, even though it was only one nil and Alan Boxic um, ahead. They were clear favourites, but. You know, if I look back at the Manchester United players now in that team, Schmeichel, Neville, Irwin, Johnson, Stam, Beckham, Book, Cole, Blomquist, Queen, York, Skulls on the bench, Sheringham on the bench, Solskjaer on the bench. Not a bad side either. No, a very, very good side. Next up, it's Rivaldo for Barcelona against Valencia in 2001. Is this the end of the season hat-trick? Yeah, so since 2001, I've divided my time between Manchester and, and Barcelona. And I'd been in Barcelona a month and got a ticket for the game, not as a journalist. So the following season, I started going to Barcelona as a journalist and I, I got a game, a ticket for this match. And Barca were having a terrible season and they were up against Valencia and Valencia were above them in the league and, and Barcelona needed to to beat Valencia to get into European football. And... Rivaldo scored a hat-trick and it wasn't just a hat-trick I think all three goals were from outside the area I mean any one of them would have been a contender for goal of the season but there was three of them and Valencia were a top top side this is a Valencia of the period who'd reached two Champions League finals who would win a double under um, Rafa Benitez who were full of absolute household names I could name more Valencia players from from that team than, than than the current team and I was in camp now on the second tier I'm not a Barca fan and I'm feeling the stadium wobbling it hadn't even wobbled when Man United beat Bayern Munich there it probably had done but I just didn't feel it so maybe because I was dispassionate and the way that the goals were scored and the fact that there was a tangible prize at the end of it of, of European football, I remember thinking that's the best hat-trick I've, I've ever seen. And it wasn't just a hat-trick. It was really meant something. They needed to win the game against a very, very good team. 
to to play in European football, and for Barca to not to be playing in Europe was was unheard of. But it was such a troubled time at the club. They went through a couple of club presidents. I remember one of them, Juan Gaspar, going out to face the music, and it was just pure theatre, like eighty thousand people waving a white hanky at him going, go, 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 demission, demission. And it was a completely different type of fandom to one I've been been used to in 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 England watching Manchester United. It was totally different. Different types of people and the the age of most Barca fans was was much older. But then Rivaldo, because he still had so many spectacular individuals and always have had. Sometimes they didn't gel, and they hadn't gelled that season. And um, he he scored the goals, and it was just a real wow moment. I've never forgotten it, and I'm sure you would have enjoyed it watching it on TV. But just to be there, yeah, and being experienced to wow, everyone's eating peanuts around me. Well, I've never seen this before. Them little nuts you crack open to be moving with the stand, and to be in camp now, which. I've become blasé about it because I've been so often, but it is the biggest stadium in Europe. It's the biggest stadium regularly staging um, live football matches in the world, and this Sunday it will close um, for, for a couple of years. So, yeah, that that was a real wow moment watching that game. And I interviewed Rivaldo a couple of times and just shows how journalism change, changed. We did him for the front cover of 442 magazine, and... I got told, yeah, you'll spend an afternoon with him. I mean, an afternoon. Now you've got PRs trying to shrink that time down to as little as possible. 15 minutes. To the point that, yeah. you know, I've said to some of them, I can't get a cover piece out of what I've just got off this person. You know, I'm talking major names as well. So this this is just crap. And they've gone, yeah, yeah, we know. So, well, it's not going on the cover. And we've had to find some compromise where we go back and do more. So to have four hours with Rivaldo on the roof of the Princess Sophia Hotel. And I couldn't speak Spanish at the time. I was just learning, so I needed a translator. But I just thought that was normal. Trust me, it's not normal. <laughs> it's definitely not normal. It, it's it's funny as well, the the acrobatics of Rivaldo's goals. The third goal, I think, was the overhead kick. And I think he scored a similar, not a similar, but he scored an overhead kick against United in that 99 season in, in the new Camp as well. And he just seems to hang in the air for an impossibly long duration of time. Mm. Yeah, no, the, goal, the goals were... I'm going to watch him again after this, and I'd advise anyone watching this to to do the same. Uh, he was the best player in the world for a couple of years, Rivaldo. And when I met him in person, he, 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 his legs were like bow leg because he'd suffered from malnutrition as a kid. Um and he, he was a really kindly person. And Barca all, always had those players. I remember soon after they they made a big deal of Saviola. They thought he was going to be the best player oh, yeah. ever. And it just didn't work out for him. And you know, Barca weren't very good for, 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 for large periods. And they became became the norm for them just to be you know, one of the best teams in the world. Yeah. But, and that when, bring, I went, when I went to that game, they weren't. That brings us very nicely to uh, Messi. Of all the things that you could have picked, Andy, you've actually picked him against Manchester United. This is horrible, this. Um, <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, you reach the European Cup final. 
Your team are the champions of England, Europe, and the world. So I'd been there in Yokohama in December the previous month, Manchester United, champions of the world. Just sat on the dock of the bay in Yokohama the next morning, listening to Radiohead's new album, watching these Japanese fishermen thinking, life ain't ever going to get any better than this. But Manchester United reach another Champions League final and it's in Rome, it's in Olympico it's a great place to go never forget some of my fellow Manchester United fans where do we go in Rome, where do we go in Rome it's one of the best cities in the world complaining, didn't think it was that good they ended up in a car park some of them on the outskirts of the city what on earth are you doing well, one of them said to me I won't have a Scooby where to go in Rome but, but, what (laughs) so there were more Barca fans in the centre of Rome than Manchester United fans because too many of them didn't know where to go and there was, there was a drinks ban on. And that didn't bother the Catalans as much as the United fans who obviously needed their first quenching. And there were a couple of events on in satellite locations around Rome. And I remember doing Catalan radio and talking up Manchester United and a couple of people, journalists who I respect, going, you're going to get destroyed. Nah, nah. So you go to Rome. And I got my mum a ticket. My mum's an old Trafford girl and she supports United. Um, she probably goes to a game once a decade. So I got her a ticket. I just thought it would be wonderful for her, paid for her to go out to Rome. And um, I had to do my, my my work. I'm in the press box and I'm a journalist. And the first nine minutes were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I That's nodded to my Catalan colleagues, told you. <laughs> Ronaldo. <laughs> they were all at it. And then Barca scored and absolutely dominated for 81 minutes. And you saw players, world-class players like Patrice Evra and Emmanuel Vidic really struggling. And Barca were brilliant. There, were a da- there was a doubt about Andres Iniesta before the game. Uh, I'd, by this time, I'd interviewed a lot of these guys. I, I'd interviewed Messi several times. I'd interviewed Messi when he was a reserve team player. I remember a mate of mine who was um, captain of Barca's reserves who wanted to learn English, and I wanted to improve my Spanish. We became really good mates and still are, saying there's a lad coming through at training from Argentina called Lionel. He played today, just said, I'm telling you as a journalist, keep an eye on him. He said, I absolutely smashed him today just to let him know that he's now a professional and I'm his captain. And that was Messi. And he scored that goal in Rome, a header. I mean, he, he was just a level above every single Manchester United player. United got the tactics wrong. Carlos Quiroz, um had, had felt that Gerard Piquet, who'd been at Manchester United, could be turned that he wasn't fast enough over the first two metres. So I'm getting very specific information by this point as a journalist, which I couldn't really do a lot with before the game, but it was was a real privilege to be be getting good level stuff. I I knew PK as well. I knew him in Manchester, but he'd obviously left and made the right decision. Long gone were the days when he said, can you take me out out, around Manchester? Because I don't know anyone. Now he's a European Cup winner. And United's midfield didn't turn up. You know, I spoke to all of them since. They would admit that. There's a couple of lines in Fergie's book where he praises the energy of the 
the Barcelona players, which may be revisited in years to come. I don't know. But they deserve to win. I had United fans complaining to me that Barca fans didn't celebrate it as much as they should do, probably because they weren't all in drink. And there's one other observation I made. So I'm, I'm gutted. I go back to my hotel. I have like three hours sleep. And I've got to get a, a, a train out of Roma, Germany at six in the morning. And I got to the train station and it was full of Manchester United fans. And none of them had a clue what had gone on in the game they'd been at because there was no information. There was no internet. There was no internet on phones. And the people's knowledge of the game was so low, I was stunned. But by the end of the train journey to Florence, where there were a lot of cheap flights going back, everyone knew everything about the game. They, they just traded off each other's opinions. And they were like, Etu's turn was fantastic, wasn't it? I'm like... You didn't know anything about the game apart from the score when I spoke to you a few hours ago. Yeah. Now at Camp Now, there is a Sala Roma, the Rome Lounge. I have to walk through that every Barcelona game I go to for work. It just feels like a punch in the face every single time. You, I think every football fan will be the same. Every rugby fan, any sports fan, you get oh, to yeah. the final and you lose. Yeah, well... Uh... And, you know... Europe. Messi was better than Ronaldo. European finals, particularly. Andy, we, we've just got time to squeeze in your last one. You, this is very interesting. Of all of the things in all the world you could have picked, it's a defeat for Manchester City. <laughs> <laughs> you said context earlier on. I'll give you some context. I'm in Cologne. We're Man United, Europa League. COVID is at peak. I watched them beat Copenhagen. I get a message to say you've been rejected for accreditation for the next game against Sevilla. Sevilla, obviously, on the way to winning the Europa League. I'm in Cologne for eight days. It's day two, and I've been rejected, and I'm really down about life. And people think you've got this dream job. I can barely leave the hotel, and I'm fuming, and I get a call 10 minutes later from a rights holder, a TV station. Will you go to Lisbon for 11 days to cover the Champions League for TV? Good money, direct flights, bang, I'm in Lisbon. Call my wife, is it all right to be away? Because I've got a young family. And I'm in Lisbon. And I'm covering Lyon against Manchester City. So gone from being so despondent to... My stars sort of aligning because I play football with the agent of Leon's manager. Put a call in, what's going on? He runs through every single player for me. The info's come direct from the manager, Rudy Garcia, who I didn't know, but I'd end up knowing really well. So I go into that stadium and I've got to talk about it on TV. I can talk about Manchester City. City are clear favourites. And Leon play... Three midfielders aged 19, 20 and 20. I'm like, you're going to get taken apart. And the feedback, feedback I'm getting from the manager is, yeah, we know, but we're going to give them a proper go. We are proud of what we've got. And I'm watching it thinking I'm, I'm going to have to speak to Guardiola after the game because I'm working for a rights holder. You know, I'm in this really privileged position where when you walk off the pitch, Someone from UEFA says, who would you like to speak to? And you're like, um, can I have Guardiola, please? And can I have you know, Kevin De Bruyne? This, you're seen as a journalist out of the other half lips. And you've got to look smart. You've got you know, to buy a shirt because we're doing it on, on TV. And Leon somehow held on. 
not to, to scrape it. They won 3-1. And Cornette, who went to Burnley, put them ahead. So the leading 1-0 at half-time. And then De Bruyne equalised 69 minutes. So everyone's thinking, OK, City are going through the gears now. They absolutely dominated. Um, but Guimaraes was fantastic in the middle. And I'm thinking, why is nobody signing this player? He's just brilliant. But he wasn't even the one who made the headlines. Um, Dembele made them because he scored twice. Dembele was the person I spoke to after the game because he was the headline. Manchester City were going out. And the Manchester United in me is like laughing, but I've also got to be a professional journalist. And I'm laughing because Leon had 33% of, of possession. They completed 184 passes. Manchester City completed 640 passes. It should just never have happened. There was one City fan in my hotel with his son who'd sneaked into Lisbon. Lovely guy, top, properly respected him and his mate. And I spoke to Guardiola after the game, and I have to say he was incredibly magnanimous. I expected an emotional rant. He was very praiseworthy towards Leon, and my opinion of him, which was extremely high as a footballer, and then extremely low when he joined Manchester City, it went up a bit. But it was all about Leon, and I spoke to the manager Rudy Garcia, and he said, "Come and see me in Leon." So a few months later, I took a train from Manchester to Leon. He was under a lot of pressure. And I think he appreciated me taking a, a train. He gave me an incredible interview. And we were talking about Charles de Gaulle and Normandy. And he's like, why are you asking me about the Normandy beaches? I'm like, I'm allowed to ask you what I want. And we got on really well. And sometimes as a journalist, finally, you just spark with somebody. You, you just do. And I'm interviewing people every day. But I got on really well with Rudy Garcia. And it's a funny old world. A year later... He's going to be manager of Manchester United and he loses out to Ralph Rangnick. Oof. And we keep in touch throughout. And then a year after that, he becomes the manager of someone called Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> so would any of that have happened if I'd not had the call, if I'd not been rejected for a press pass in, in Cologne? These sliding doors moments mm. in life, in sport, Guimaraes, whatever happened to him. <laughs> a brilliant episode of You Had to Be There, Andy Mitten. Thanks so much. That was sensational. So unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there.